by my physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And now I'm going to read verse 25 just as it is written. This is Paul speaking. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I, Paul, might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And now turn to chapter 3. We're just going to read one verse. Chapter 3, verse 4, Colossians. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It was an ancient Paul who penned these words, words that are simply beyond us. A few years ago, Leonard Sweet and I wanted to write a commentary on Colossians, but we came to a conclusion that caused us to quickly drop the idea, and that conclusion was that neither of us could get past Colossians chapter 1. So we ended up writing a book entitled Jesus Manifesto, and much of it is rooted in Colossians 1. Let me give you a little bit of background to this passage. The church in Colossae is four years old, and they have accepted a false teaching. Now, interestingly, scholars disagree, and they're really not sure what the Colossian heresy was. And the reason why they're not sure what it was, and the reason why they debate about it, is because Paul never defines it. And he never directly addresses it. Now, church leaders, listen, real close. Paul's way of dealing with a problem in a church is to give God's people a stunning unveiling of Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, the solution to all problems is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the common denominator behind every problem, whether it's an individual or a church, if you can juice it down to one thing, it's this. They have lost sight of Jesus Christ. And to put it in Paul's words, they failed to hold fast to the head the head of the body. But whatever we can say about what the Colossian heresy was, what that false doctrine was that they embraced, we know this. The Colossian Christians thought that they could graduate beyond the Lord Jesus Christ. They took Jesus as their Savior and their Lord, and they thought that they can go beyond Jesus to other things, deeper things, higher things, things beyond Christ. And what Paul does in this amazing letter is he pulls back the curtain 
And he gives the Colossian Christians a staggering view of Jesus Christ. A view that boggles the mind. A view that enraptures the heart. A view that takes our breath away. And a view that no false doctrine can stand in the presence of. It really is incredible. And so taking our cue from Colossians 1, I want to tell you a story. There have been hundreds of commentaries written on Colossians, and virtually all of them are written from a left-brain perspective. You know, it's line upon line. It's very analytical. It's very critical. What I want to do is give you a view of this incredible passage, not from the left brain, but from the right brain. And may the Holy Spirit of God enable me and anoint me to communicate this unfathomable, incredible Lord. So that we can just get a fresh glimpse of Him. And brothers and sisters, if we can see Him with eyes, not physical. If the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to see this incomparable Christ, then it will blow off the table everything that competes with him. And we won't have to try to love him. The love will be ignited naturally at the sight of his peerless worth. The story begins in eternity before the foundation of the world. When the Godhead took counsel with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, and conceived a purpose. This is before angels or atoms. It's before God said, let there be. And Paul calls this purpose the eternal purpose in Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, it's what provoked God to create this universe. What is that purpose? Well, we can spend the next nine months unraveling it, and we still wouldn't exhaust it, but very simply, and this is one aspect of it, but it's an important aspect. Very simply, God wanted to impart his life to a creature not yet created. And he wanted that creature to share that life, his own life, and make it visible. So God creates. He creates the invisible realm, and then he creates the visible realm. And he creates all things by his son he creates all things through his son and he creates all things for his son by him through him and for him and another thing he does is he shrouds the father shrouds this purpose in a mystery and he hides it in his son for ages because all things are created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ, everything in the visible creation has the imprint of the Son of God upon it. All things, all created things that came off the finger of God reflect Christ in some way. That includes the sky, that includes the water, it includes the plant life, it includes the trees, it includes the mountains. Everything created has the imprint of Christ on it. We can see Jesus in the sun. We can see him in the moon. 
The heavens declare the glory of God, the scripture says, and Paul says the glory of God is where? It's in the face of Jesus Christ. And God creates a garden, and in the center of the garden he puts a very special tree. It's called the tree of life. And that tree is pulsating and beating with a certain kind of life. It is a life of God himself. And he invites the apex of his creation, human beings, to partake of that life. But tragedy strikes. And the one who created the universe watches it fall and morph into an enemy, even his own enemy. So God sets out to restore his good creation. And he chooses a man, and from that man he chooses a people called by his name. And the story of Israel is the story of a God who wants to get his creation back. But Israel fails. And the Lord does the unthinkable. He penetrates a fallen universe himself. Time becomes pregnant. And what Kierkegaard called the absolute paradox breaks into the visible universe. And the unchanging God becomes fully human and pierces the veil of space-time. Jesus is born in a humble village called Bethlehem amid the stain and the stench of animal waste. He's born in the most humble of conditions through the most humble people in one of the most humble places. This is not a place for a king to be born. He grows up in the despised town of Nazareth and he becomes a day laborer, a craftsman who works with wood and stone. And I ask the question, who is this craftsman from the ill-starred town of Nazareth? Well, he is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. God the Father said, I have found my greatest pleasure. My greatest pleasure is that all of me, all of my power, all of my riches, all of my glory, all of my fullness, all of what it means for me to be God, my greatest pleasure is that all of me would dwell in my Son. And so it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell in Him. And if you can imagine being in the first century and seeing Jesus of Nazareth walk by, and you just touched Him, you touched His physical flesh. Brothers and sisters, you would be touching eternity. You would be touching the fullness of divinity. You would also be touching perfect humanity. You would be touching the ages of the ages, a being inside that physical body who has no beginning. The fullness of the Godhead. But that's not all. He also came as the new Adam, bearing the image of God. For Paul tells us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. We have a lot of people who are trying to figure out in our time and in our day, even Christians, trying to figure out what is God really like. And some people try to, to do it chronologically. They say, okay, well, the way we're going
going to find out what God is like is we're going to go back into the Old Testament and meet the God of the Old Testament. And once we figure out what the God of the Old Testament is like, we'll project that onto Jesus and so we'll understand Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, the New Testament reverses that kind of thinking. You will never understand what God is like if you begin with the God of the Old Testament. You must first look at Jesus. And if you look at Jesus, you will understand who the God of the Old Testament is. Brothers and sisters, this Lord of ours, this Jesus, this Christ, is the human face of God. John said it in the beginning of his gospel, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And in the Greek, it actually means he has exposited him. He has exegeted him. Jesus is the exegesis, the exposition, the explanation of God. We cannot know God outside of Christ. There is no God outside of Jesus. He's God in flesh. Well, what does this God look like? What does he act like? Watch him at a wedding in Cana. And that day, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to bring the food and the wine. And if the wine ran out, it was the bridegroom's fault. And it was a social disgrace. And that's exactly what happened at this particular wedding. The wine ran out. This was an epic oversight of the bridegroom on his greatest day. Behold your Lord's first miracle. He turns water into wine, but it's not an ordinary wine. It is a greater wine. It is a better wine. It is a finer wine than the batch that had ran out. And in one brilliant stroke of compassion, Jesus Christ, your Lord, removed the bridegroom's disgrace. He removed the bridegroom's shame. He reversed the failure. And not only that, but he ended up making the bridegroom look like a hero. For when they tasted the wine, they couldn't believe that he waited to the end to bring the best wine out. What a Christ! He's in the business of removing your shame. That's who he is. Watch him as he encounters a woman at a well. She's abused. She has been used. She's rejected. She's known pain and sorrow all her life. She is a Samaritan of ill repute. She has been divorced numerous times and she's living in sin. And there he is. Jesus, your Lord, does the unthinkable. He breaks all social conventions and he talks to her in public. Jews were not supposed to talk to Samaritans. They weren't supposed to talk to women in public, and surely they weren't supposed to be talking to a woman like this. He not only talks to her in public, which stuns the disciples, but he shares with her some of the greatest things a human being can ever hear. And then he goes back with her to Samaria, and he breaks all Jewish tradition and custom by eating the food from the Samaritans and using their utensils and sitting in their homes. I don't know about you, but that's an incredible Christ. 
people are more important to him than human traditions. Watch him sitting in front of a woman who's just been caught in the act of adultery. She's dragged like a rag doll by the hands of bloodthirsty, judgmental men. They throw her at the feet of Jesus. She's bleeding. Her head is down. She's weeping. And through the tears, all she can see are the sandals of the men who are holding stones, getting ready to send her to her death. And there he is, the Lord of creation, sitting in front of her, drawing on the ground. And he asks one question that pierces the heart of every person who can hear his voice. The person that has never sinned, you throw the first stone at her. And there's silence. And the woman sitting there, hears the sound of stones falling to the ground. And she opens her eyes. And one by one, she sees the sandals disappear until there's none left. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a Christ. What a Lord. What a Savior. What a God. He's mercy and compassion. Brothers and sisters, we don't know God except in Jesus Christ. There is no God except in Jesus Christ. He's God in flesh. He's the new Adam, bearing the image of the invisible God. But that's not all. He's also the new Adam in this way. He exercises the dominion of God over the earth, especially the creeping things. And now, Brother Wolfgang, I'm going to talk about the kingdom a little bit. And I appreciated a lot of the things you shared with us. This really does bring us to the kingdom of God. And as I see it, there are basically three dominating views about the kingdom of God today. And here they are. First, there are people who equate the kingdom with heaven. The kingdom of God is heaven. And we're just waiting to escape from this dirty little planet to go to a better place far, far away. And that place is the kingdom of God. The other view is that the kingdom of God equals the miraculous power of God to cast out devils, to heal the sick, and to raise the dead. And I thought I heard a little bitty amen coming from somewhere in the room on that one. And then the third dominating view of the kingdom is that the kingdom of God, and this has become very popular today among uh, many Christians, is that the kingdom of God is the alleviation of poverty, oppression, and it's related to social justice. And these three views of the kingdom are held in tension. And typically when someone holds to one of them, they don't hold to the other two. Well, I'm now going to give you my definition of the kingdom of God. And I like it because it puts the kingdom in the context of a person. And usually the definitions we hear of the kingdom, we don't get that person in there. But here it is. And I think this fits every passage that you can read about in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the manifestation of God's ruling presence. I'm going to run that by again. The kingdom of God is the manifestation of God's ruling presence. Brothers and sisters, what is God's rule? Jesus Christ is the rule of God in person. And what is God's presence? Jesus Christ is the presence of God. 
This is why the early church fathers, from the first century all the way to the fifth century, over and over again, unanimously said that the kingdom of God is embodied in Jesus Christ. He is the kingdom in his person. He is the manifestation of God's ruling presence. Wherever he is, that's where the kingdom is. They call him the Autobasilia, meaning he was the embodiment of the kingdom. And I'm reminded of that text in Luke 17 where Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees and they're saying, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus looks at them and he says, and he's standing right in their midst. He says, the kingdom of God is not here nor there. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I am the kingdom of God. And so brothers and sisters, we cannot separate the king from his kingdom. Wherever Jesus Christ is, that's where the kingdom of God is. Wherever he is functioning. And what does he do when he functions? He bears the image and presence of God. And he bears and exercises the rule of God. He is the kingdom. But I'm going to go further. The kingdom of God cannot be separated from Jesus Christ, the king. But we make a mistake if we separate the kingdom from the ecclesia. Let me explain. <clears throat> There's an old saying, it's been around a long time, it goes like this. Jesus only mentioned the church twice. He mentioned the kingdom over a hundred times. Therefore, the kingdom is more important than the church. If we use that logic, we will have to also say that the kingdom of God is more important than the Trinity. Because Jesus never mentions the Trinity. Let me give you a different way of approaching the whole issue. Jesus never mentions the Trinity by using that word, but the Trinity is on almost every page of the Gospels. For every time he talks about the Father and the Spirit and the Son of Man, brothers and sisters, he has the Trinity in view. And sometimes they're all right there, like in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And sometimes they're in living color, like at his baptism. Remember? The sun comes out of the water, the dove comes from heaven and sits on him, and then the Father speaks. There's the triune God right before us. Well, brothers and sisters, in the same way, Jesus talked an awful lot about the ecclesia. In fact, it's almost on every page of the Gospels. Whenever you see that little band of 12 men and 5 to 8 women who are living as a community... And they're living with Jesus Christ and he is the head. You are seeing the embryonic expression of the ecclesia. And that is the community of the king. That was the new society that Jesus Christ was constituting while he was on this earth. And not only that, but every time he said things like, You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. I am the vine. You are the branches. Who is my brother and sister but those who fulfill the word of God? The Gentiles lead like this, but it shall not be so among you. Brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church. He's talking to the ecclesia. To separate the kingdom from the church is to separate light from visibility. They are distinct, but they are not separate. Anytime a group of people are enthroning Jesus Christ as their head 
Or as Wolfgang likes to put it, as their king, as their lord, there in the midst of that people is the kingdom of God. And you will have peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit among that people. In Jesus Christ, God's future has broken into time. And we as Christians live in the presence of the future. And that's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom is already, but not yet. And uh, there's an argument that says, well, you know, the kingdom really isn't already. It's mostly not yet. Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But if you look at the actual Greek, that's not what he said. He said, my kingdom is not from this world. It is certainly for this world. For note his words. Remember when he said, Thy kingdom come, dot, 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 on earth as it is in heaven. So it's not from this realm, but brothers and sisters, it is certainly for it. But that's not all. Jesus Christ is not only the new Adam, he's also the new Israel. And this will make your Old Testament come to life and it will make the Gospels stand up and sing the Hallelujah Chorus. As a child, he left Egypt. And Matthew quotes Hosea the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. But Hosea wasn't speaking about Jesus. He was speaking about Israel. But Matthew applies it to Jesus. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Right from the beginning, this one, this Messiah, is not only the fullness of the Godhead and not only the new Adam, he's the new Israel. After his baptism, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. That's a replay of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. It's no accident, brothers and sisters. And then he calls 12 men. What is that? It's the echo of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is constituting a new people of God. He's constituting a new Israel. Then he meets a woman at Jacob's well at noon. And Jacob met the woman who had become his wife at a well at noon. Only this woman that Jesus met is half Jew and half Gentile. She represents the new people of God and he's the new Jacob. And we can go on and on. We can spend the next hour drawing all the parallels about how Jesus Christ relives and replays the story of Israel almost to a T. But not only that, but he brings it to a climax. Praise the Lord. Jesus did say, all scripture testifies of me. Well, that wasn't just those few prophecies in the Old Testament that we point to and try to convince Jewish people that Jesus is their Messiah. No, it's everything in the Old Testament. It all points to Him. It's amazing. But not only is He the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and this is where it gets real exciting for me. Not only is He the new Adam, not only is He the new Israel, but brothers and sisters, He came to reconcile a fallen universe to Himself. And how did he do it? On a stake, sitting on a hill outside of Jerusalem where blood was spilled. Jesus Christ, our Lord, suffered the most gruesome death any mortal can suffer. But what he did on that cross, the enormity of it, has been lost to us. On that cross, 
He took every sin, every transgression, every screw-up, every mistake that you and I would ever commit. But that's not all. On that cross, He took the entire world system that was in rebellion against His Father. But that's not all. On that cross, He took the entire old creation that was corrupt and fallen. But that's not all. On that cross, He took the condemnation of the law that condemns us day and night. But that's not all. On that cross, He took you and He took me. Our old Adamic nature, our flesh. But that's not all. On that cross, He took the very power of Lucifer, Satan himself. Jesus Christ crucified all of that. And when He died, all of those things died. And more than all of that, He became sin personified. He became the brass serpent. He who was absolute righteousness became absolute sin. And then He faced the greatest enemy, the greatest foe that God ever had. Death itself. What the Bible calls the last enemy. It was the battle of the ages. Death, the child of sin. Death, the antithesis of God Himself, darkened the wood of that cross and took the Son of God into His hopeless domain. And brothers and sisters, I have to tell you, because this is the truth, death was victorious. Death slew the Son of Life. Behold, the body of Jesus of Nazareth lying in a tomb. Death had won. Death had become victorious. But three days later, the Father stepped in. He got involved. And now it was the two greatest powers in the universe squaring off death versus divine life. And God the Father concentrated all of His power. And He brought all of His strength brought it straight to a tomb. It was the greatest display of power since the visible creation. And there was a fight and there was a struggle. And the earth shook and the heavens shook. And Jesus of Nazareth, by the power of the Father, and you will find this all throughout the New Testament, it was the Father who raised the body of Jesus from the dead. The body of Jesus the Son of God came to life. And He defeated death. And on that day, death died. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of creation, overcame and became victorious over death itself. And He became the firstborn from the dead. And when He broke off those chains, for death could not hold the Son of God, Something else happened that I think is just amazing. He was no longer bound by space and time, but he became a life-giving spirit, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15. And he imparted his own life into his disciples. And on that day, brothers and sisters, the only begotten Son of God became the firstborn among many brethren. Praise the Lord.
and they became the sons and daughters of God. And I don't know if you realize this, but on that day, the grave turned into a garden. Do you remember when Mary saw him in his resurrected state? She thought he was the gardener. He was in a garden. We're back to Genesis 3, brothers and sisters. And the tree of life is on the earth again. And it is Christ. For he had imparted his life to his disciples. And he brought forth from the womb of death an unprecedented creation. He brought forth from the womb of death a new humanity, a new race, a new kingdom from another realm. And in that humanity, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, there is no rich, there is no poor, there is no slave, there is no free, there is no black, there is no white, there is no male, there is no female, there is no Hispanic, there is no Oriental. All earthly distinctions have been erased. This is a new creation. And it has the life of God beating within it. And Jesus is the head of this new creation. And Christ is all in all in this new creation. What is this? This is the ecclesia of God. Bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Kin to divinity. And brothers and sisters, you are part of that new humanity. Praise the Lord. And because of that hill, and because of that cross, and because of that blood, you and I stand holy, without blemish, and without accusation in the sight of a holy God. Praise the Lord. Well, let's fast forward to the future. Time will become pregnant again. And Jesus Christ, your Lord, will split the heavens. And in regal glory, he will return to this planet. And this earth shall receive her king. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Christ. And he shall reign forever. And every tongue shall confess. And every knee shall bow. That Jesus, the lone star carpenter from Nazareth, is this world's true Lord. That's true today, but it's going to be manifested then. You know, there's a book, it's a bestseller. It's called, It's Your Time. Well, brothers and sisters, a day is coming where it will be His time. And all who pierced Him shall mourn when they see Him. And we have that incredible scene in the book of Revelation. A matchless throng that no man can number from every tribe, every race, every kindred, every tongue. And God does something incredible. The throng turns into a whirlwind of glorious light, as glorious as the face of God. And it begins to form. And out of it, out of this whirlwind, steps the most glorious woman beyond the imagination of mortals. The bride makes her entrance. The mystery of the ages, the new Eve. And gold is poured into gold and light into light. And the bride of the Lamb becomes the wife of God. And the two shall become one. For behold, I show you a mystery. The woman was taken out of the man and brought to the man, and the two become one flesh. 
But I'm not speaking of Adam and Eve. I'm speaking of Christ and the church. And I just quoted Paul in Ephesians 5. Jesus Christ and His presence shall fill the earth. His kingdom shall cover the universe as the water covers the sea. He will sum up all things in Himself. And then He will hand the kingdom back to His Father and God will become all and all. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. But that's not all. Now we come to the mind blower. Get ready to smoke brain cells here, folks. <laughs> Everything I have just said to you has happened. Everything I have shared with you has already taken place. In Colossians 1, Paul gives us a view of the universe that would spin the head of Stephen Hawking and blow the circuitry of Albert Einstein. He says, all things were created by Christ. All things were created through Christ. And all things were created for Christ. But that's not all. He says, all things were created in Christ. And in Him, all things hold together. And that includes time itself. Brothers and sisters, time is in Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, gave a beautiful illustration of this. I'll never forget it. He said, imagine a sheet of paper and imagine a straight horizontal line across the middle of the paper. That line is time. The paper is God. Time is in him. Karl Barth, the great theologian, said, God acts and moves in time while he stands outside of time. It's not that he shot the movie in his head before he created it. It's that the movie is inside of him. So he's at the beginning of the movie. He's in the middle of the movie. He's at the end of the movie at the same moment. He that speaks to the churches, who is, who was, who is to come. I am the Alpha and Omega, he said. It's not that he's the Alpha and then later on he's the Omega. No, he's the Alpha and the Omega at the same moment or non-time. He's the A and the Z. He's the beginning and the end at the same moment. Brothers and sisters, listen. What's past for us and what's future for us is part of God's now. That's why the prophets called him the root and the branch. In him all things hold together. He is the firstborn over all creation. That means that he is before creation, he is the heir of all things, and he is the beginning, he is also the end. This explains those mysterious passages in the New Testament that we just kind of read and pass by. For example, in Hebrews 4, it says, He finished all things before He began all things. And in Revelation 13, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. 
And in Romans 8, Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome that seven years later, after he writes that letter to them, will meet a gruesome death under Nero. And he says to them, He whom God foreknew, he predestined. And he who he predestined, he called. And he who he called, he justified. And he who he justified, he past tense glorified. Wait a minute, Paul. They haven't even died yet. How can they be glorified? Well, they were glorified. It just hadn't caught up to them yet. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, this Christ of ours, this Lord, this amazing Savior, this Jesus holds all creation and even time inside of him. And he wrapped it up before he ever started it. God is not playing it by ear. He's not making it up as he goes along. No matter how chaotic things get in your life, he's built the chaos into his plan. Creation is in him. What security? What guarantee? What assurance? What a Lord. When you make a mistake, God is not in heaven saying, Oh no, I can't believe he did that. No. (laughs) He not only saw it, he was there when it happened. In fact, brothers and sisters, the day that haunts you the most, the thing you did that you regret the most, do you know something? Your Lord saw it on the day that he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world, and he still chose you. And not only that, he was there when it happened. Praise his name. And now I come to what's really on my heart. That's all introduction. Brothers and sisters, I implore you by the Holy Spirit to see the unseen. That God in His good graces would reveal to you and me this incomparable Christ. And that you would know that this eternal, limitless, incarnate, perfect, crucified, resurrected, ascended, enthroned, Victorious, triumphant, matchless, glorious Lord. Now dwells inside of you. And that is the mystery of the ages. Hid in God before time that he would impart his own life into a creature not yet created and here you are but that's not all (laughs) not only does Jesus Christ dwell inside of you this Christ that I have just explained this Lord the enormity of who he is that's the one Not only does he dwell in you, but brothers and sisters, he has given you the privilege, he has given you the right, and he has given you the high calling to live 
by his life. Christ our life. Colossians 3, 4. Galatians 2. It is not I, but Christ lives in me. And now I want to press a question. How did Jesus of Nazareth live his peerless life? And we all know the answer. He walked around Galilee with a WWFD bracelet on his wrist, <laughs> asking, what would the Father do in this situation? What would the Father do in that situation? What would the Father do? No, that's not what he did. He said, what I hear the Father say. That's what I say. What the Father judges, that's what I judge. It's not me who does the works, it's the Father doing the work through me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, your Lord, when he was on this earth and he modeled, we say he's our example, right? We all think, well, that means we need to try to do what Jesus did. Well, no, no. He modeled how he lived his life. And he told us how. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he who partakes of me shall live by me. He said, I can do nothing apart from my Father. And then he turned around to his disciples. He turned around to you and me and he said, you can do nothing without me. See, brothers and sisters, the passage has moved. Jesus Christ lived by an indwelling Father, but the passage has moved. What the Father was to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is to you and me. He's our indwelling Lord. And here is my definition of an organic church. Whatever you can say about it. And you can say many things about it. First and foremost, it is this. It is a group of people who are learning how to live by the indwelling life of Christ together. And they are sharing that life together. And they are displaying that life together. They're making it visible. And we're right back to that eternal purpose. So it's not, what would Jesus do? It's, watch what Jesus does. Or what is Jesus doing through you, through me, through us? And here's my heart. This should bring us to our knees. This should change the way we look at Him. Saints, He lives in us. And you can live life living by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And notice, it's the knowledge of good as well as evil. Or you can live by the tree of life. And the way we do that, the way we're called to do that, is with other believers in a community. And that's when the kingdom of God gets manifested. When we live Christ. Here's my heart. May God raise up women and men in this hour that are humble enough to learn what it means to live by the indwelling life of Christ and are courageous enough to proclaim the unsearchable riches of that life to others. And I stand with John the Apostle who said, that which was from the beginning, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have heard with our ears, that which we have handled, 
This life we proclaim to you so that you might have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Amen and amen. What an incredible Lord. Thank you so much for listening to the message. Many people have asked me the question, I understand that the Lord lives inside of me. I understand that Christ by the Spirit dwells in me. But how do I live by his indwelling life? And to answer that question, I have released an online course entitled Living by the Indwelling Life of Christ. It's a 10 audio program that goes into great detail on how to practically live by the Lord's life. It also comes with a workbook and a bonus ebook. If you're interested in the course, you can go to thedeeperjourney.com. That's thedeeperjourney.com. And you will see the course along with samples and registration. However, the course only opens up two or three times a year. So if you happen to go to the website at a time where registration is not open, just make sure you join the waiting list and you'll be notified when registration opens again. Also on that site, thedeeperjourney.com, you will see my entire podcast archive. And that includes all the episodes of the podcast, including many other messages that I've given in conferences and churches. All of it's free, and I hope it will bless you. Take care.